Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 21. It can be found on page 857 if you're following along in a pew Bible. Uh, You can also find it printed there for you in the bulletin. Throughout this Advent series, we've been considering the promises of the Old Testament concerning the coming of Christ. And Nate began by reminding us that everything we do really depends upon promises. Sorry, is this on? People are running. Okay. Is it working okay? Okay, great. Um, We depend on promises that microphones will do what they're supposed to do. No. Uh, Everything that we do is based on this pledge that something will happen um, and someone will carry through on it. Governments, contracts, money, relationships, they all work because people make and keep promises. And as we think about that, we realize that promises then are actually very powerful things. We set our hopes on promises that others make to us. And actually, we orient our entire lives based on the thought that people will follow through with what they have said. If we live our, our lives in a certain way, uh, or as we live our lives in a certain way, we do so because we believe that if we do, it's going to bring a certain result for us. The promises that we believe really affect every decision that we make, don't they? Well, Christmas calls us to then examine the promises that we hold to. And in particular, as we look at the arrival of God's promised fulfillment to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we will consider that today by looking at this Christmas text in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So I'll read verse, or Luke 2, verses 1 through 21, and then we will consider the arrival of God's promised Savior this morning. This is God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, 
Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's go to the Lord and ask his help as we consider his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come to you humbly and ask that you would help us in whatever condition we find ourselves, that you would meet us today with the beauty, the assurance, the promise, the comfort of the good news of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us faith this morning. We pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning. And we pray that you would fill us with joy and peace as we come to understand the goodwill that you have poured out upon us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, I want us to consider two main points as we look at this text together. The first is the Christmas context of lofty promises, and the second is the Christmas message of lowly fulfillment. So first, we'll consider together the Christmas context of lofty promises. Luke begins this section with words that situate us in the context of the Roman Empire. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. When we may start by asking ourselves, why was it significant enough to include these details in this powerful story? Well, part of it was to show its historical time and context and place. When we speak of the Christmas story, we're not speaking of a fiction or a fantasy, but we're speaking about real events that really took place in history, and we're speaking about the narrative or the story of those events. But Luke's description here also orients us to the context of what things were like when Jesus was born. And part of what we need to know about when Jesus was born is that this man, Caesar Augustus, was issuing a decree. So who was this Caesar Augustus? Well, his real name was Octavian, and he was the son of Julius Caesar's nephew. And if you know your Roman history, you may know that after the assassination of Julius Caesar, Octavian joined with Mark Antony, and they together defeated Brutus and Cassius. Then later, Octavian defeated Antony and Cleopatra. Those names might be familiar to you. And in 31 BC, he became the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. And shortly after that, the Roman Senate gave him this title, Augustus, meaning majestic or holy. And Caesar Augustus did some great things. He built the Roman Forum. He founded libraries. He sponsored lavish spectacles for all the people of the Roman city. 
He boasted that he had found Rome built by brick, but he left it built in marble. And he was also the first emperor to deify his name and his reign as the ruler of Rome. And part of the way that he did that was through stories about his birth. He claimed to be the son of Zeus. So he claimed to be the son of the gods. And there was legend that he, like Alexander the Great, was miraculously conceived by a serpent. I always wonder what the mothers of these rulers think, you know, when uh, their sons grow up and assume power and start telling these stories that they were conceived by Zeus and a snake was in the mix. Um, But there's an inscription that goes back to 9 BC that says that his birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. And there's an inscription that we have preserved in the British Museum that's part of a building, and and it tells us how Caesar Augustus wanted to be viewed and was inscribed to be viewed by the people. And it's a little bit lengthy, but I want you to listen to this, especially in the backdrop of what we've been hearing in Luke 2. It says, Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father, Zeus, and a savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea, while cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons. The productivity of all things is good and at its prime, and there are fond hopes for the future, goodwill during the present, which fills all men, so that they ought bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. Do you hear it? (laughs) Caesar himself says that his birthday is good news because he is the savior of the common folk. And he surpasses all desires because he is bringing peace and goodwill for all men. And they should worship him, shouldn't they? Bearing pleasing sacrifices and hymns. And we get a hint of this lofty tone that Caesar has when we hear what Luke says. He issues a decree that all the world should be registered. And we stop and we think, wait a minute. Rome wasn't the entirety of the civilized world. But Caesar can do what men in power often do, make lofty grandiose claims, exaggerating their own importance and imagining that he is decreeing what is important for the entirety of the world. But his lofty promises, this this context, isn't all that's happening in the Christmas narrative. All throughout history, God has been making promises too. And we've been reflecting upon those promises throughout our Advent series. Alongside history's counterfeit promise makers, God has been speaking another word. That promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The promise of a king who would lead and usher in righteousness and true peace. The promise of true and lasting comfort. The promise of a new world where things are all put the way that they were intended to be. The promise of God 
dwelling with us forever. And as we come to Luke's account, Luke has been highlighting this promise through the songs of the faithful. They break out in these prophetic songs in Luke's narrative against this backdrop of these bombastic promises by powerful people claiming to come as saviors. There are these normal Israelites who are singing these songs of praise that show their trust in not what man has promised, but in what God has promised. Mary sings that she rejoices in God my Savior. And Zechariah sings that the God of Israel has raised up a horn of salvation for his people and that he will guide their feet in the way of peace. And now, as we come to this Christmas account with this backdrop of these two words of promise, we find God announcing that his promised fulfillment has arrived. And we can now hear these angels' announcement for what they really are. Caesar issues a decree concerning the entire Roman world, but heaven's messengers appear with a proclamation for all people. Caesar calls himself Savior and says that he brings good news and peace, but the angel announces the truly good news that the Savior of the world has been born. And the heavenly hosts or the heavenly army come not to bring down warfare upon the people, but they sing of peace for all those upon whom God's favor and goodwill rests. You see, this Christmas context that we've been in for a while and that we consider as we think about Christmas Day this morning, it invites us to consider the question, of what promises we really trust. Whose promises fill the songs of our hearts? The constant question for us is, do we turn to these lesser promises and these false saviors, or is our hope fixed firmly on God's promises and our lives ordered around them? You see, it's actually really a subtle problem, isn't it? It's kind of a tricky thing to root out in our lives. And that's because it involves seeking good things, doesn't it? Things like peace, joy, goodwill, salvation, all good things. We were made to long for these things. Ryan said last week that Eden is in our blood. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says eternity has been set in our hearts. Something about us says this is what we were made for. But the problem is that we are so quick to trust promises that they can come in a different way than how God has promised they will come. The entire advertising industry is built on telling us to buy this, have that, look this way, live this way, and if you do, you will have joy and peace and blessing. Our companies promise us if we just push harder for a little bit longer, then we will have success and peace that we long for. Books, And blogs and podcasts promise that if we just run our lives or our homes in a certain way, then we will have the peace and joy we are seeking. 
And one thing that also hasn't changed is political leaders tell us that if their party is in charge, then things will be the way that they should be. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that none of us explicitly claim that we're putting our hope in Caesar, right? We've seen from history that that doesn't work and that Christians shouldn't say such things. And yet, do our habits reveal that maybe we start to subtly trust Caesar a little bit more than we should at times? The amount of time and energy we spend watching what Caesar does and doesn't do, or the depth of disappointment and anger we feel when his promises fall through or when they're thwarted by the other side. You see, at Christmas we start to consider, what are our promises really rooted in? Who are we really trusting? Some of us may have given up on other people's promises altogether. (laughs) We've been burned enough in life, and instead we turn to what promises to distract us from the way things really are. Food and drink, entertainment, mindless scrolling, frantic busyness, whatever keeps us from seeing how things really are. But the Christmas account calls us to remember There's only one way that true peace, joy, and salvation comes. It is found in the promise that God has made to his people and that he has fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. All these other claims, all these other saviors will ultimately leave us coming up empty. I wonder during the Christmas season, if part of the angst that I so often feel is this story slamming into my life and making me stop and think, what is it that you are running to to find joy and peace and blessing? And then it calls me to realign my heart to the source of all those things and the promises that God has put forth. So this passage calls us not only to consider what promises we trust, but it also helps us see the way that God fulfills his promises. And and that's our, our second point, the Christmas message of lowly fulfillment. The Christmas message of lowly fulfillment. It's against this backdrop of these grandiose promises of Caesar that the announcement of God's fulfillment comes. And the way it comes couldn't be more striking in contrast to what the other promise makers of the day were doing. And we'll really see it in two movements, really. The first is the Savior's lowly arrival. The Savior's lowly arrival. The camera in Luke's narrative switches from Caesar's palace proclamation to then it zooms out to the ordinary people the peasants of the land whose lives are now radically altered by this decree that has come from on high. And a few surprisingly ordinary places are mentioned right off the bat in verse 4. Verse 4 tells us Joseph went up from Galilee. And as soon as we hear Galilee, we think out in the country, away from the city, but then also more specifically from Nazareth. It's hard for us to feel the weight of that term. And rather than fall into the peril of 
having you think of some city that's in my mind, we can just hear Philip's words that say, can anything good come from Nazareth? And whatever city or region that brings to your mind, feel that weight in this text. It starts as low as you can go. But maybe there's hope, right? Joseph's going up to Judea, to the city of David. Nearly every time in scripture you hear the city of David, what does it refer to? It refers to Jerusalem, David's royal city that he built, Zion, the glory of Israel. So we think, okay, great, it may start low, but Jesus, Joseph is going up to the capital city. But here, surprisingly, city, the city of David refers not to where David ended up in glory, but it refers to where David started in humility. Verse 4 says, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, that small town where David began as a lowly shepherd who wasn't even considered when Samuel came looking for the next king of Israel. And not only do these places that are mentioned scream for us of this lowly arrival, but so do the details of Jesus' parents. Joseph has some good roots, we find. He's related to David. That's pretty prestigious. But he hasn't really amounted to much, has he? He's living in Nazareth. Seems like he's just a normal carpenter. While the verdict may be out on his status, his choice of wife really seals the deal. Because it says Mary was accompanying him on this journey, but she's not yet described as Joseph's wife, is she? She's described as his betrothed. And then those scandalous words was with child. And so what we find, we know from the story thus far, this is not a sign of scandal, but actually supernatural wonder. But to the watching world, this is a story of social and religious disgrace, lowly places and lowly people. And we can't miss how the text highlights the lowliness of Jesus' birth. Think about it. After hundreds of years of anticipation of the arrival of God's promises, after the longest chapter in the New Testament describing the anticipation of people waiting for the Savior to be born, the birth of this child is narrated in two short verses, isn't it? Verse 6 says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Shortly after the writings of the New Testament were completed, legends began to grow about Jesus' birth and childhood. And some people published books under pseudonyms saying this is how it was and all kinds of wild things happened. Jesus making birds out of clay, all of these things. Some of those imagined details have been preserved in what we often think of in the Christmas account and to varying degrees. I just want to speak for a moment, not to crash on anyone's like Christmas thoughts or make you rearrange your nativity scene or something. But, but just to speak a little about how it probably really was as we consider what the words and the customs of hospitality were at the time. 
that phrase there, there was no room at the inn, has led to these depictions of Joseph coming into Bethlehem frantically looking for a place to stay. And then you find this legendary innkeeper who sometimes is a really nasty man, right? And he says, there's no room. You need to go away. And he turns them away to a cave. Well, it's helpful to realize that that word translated in is not usually used to speak of a public place to stay. Luke later will use that word when he talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the Samaritan pays the innkeeper to care for um, the man who has been injured. Instead, that word is most often used as the guest room of a typical home. You see, houses normal people's houses, not rich people's houses, but they were usually divided into three areas. You had your private guest room, and then in the middle you had the the common area where most everything took place, and then also still attached to the home, maybe separated by a half wall, was where the animals would be fed and would stay overnight. And you'd want your animals in the house with you because when it's cold, they provide warmth. And if they're in your house, it's a lot less likely that they'll get stolen. If you have a detached barn somewhere, who's going to be keeping watch over that unless you have enough money to pay someone to do that? And so it's probably more accurate to see that Joseph and Mary had probably already made arrangements to stay with Joseph's relatives when they made this trip to Bethlehem. And while they were there, speaking of a period of time, Mary ends up giving birth to the child. And so there in this normal house in Bethlehem, Mary has her baby in what seems like one of the most typical births. It's likely that other women and midwives would have accompanied her in this process. After the birth, the text tells us she did what every Jewish mother at the time would have done, wrapped his limbs in strips of cloth to keep them warm and perhaps straight as he was a young baby. But in all this ordinariness of Jesus' birth, there's also this note of it being especially lonely or lowly not necessarily lonely. They're not in the guest room of the house because more esteemed family had probably already come in and had those, that room reserved. And because of that, the first place that this Christ child is laid is a manger, a feeding trough for the animals. The holy bread from heaven is laid, first of all, in a manger where common animals eat. And it was a truly lowly arrival of the fulfillment of God's promise, wasn't it? But secondly, we also see the Savior's lowly reception. You you realize that births and birthdays and coronations of emperors and kings, they were grand events, announcements of good news throughout the land, receptions, parades, you name it, do it on an emperor's birthday. It's the time to do the biggest parties. Jesus' birth brings one of the grandest announcements in history. A heavenly messenger, an angel of the Lord, lights up the dark night sky with heaven's glory. And if that weren't enough, suddenly heaven's army shows up with him, not to break out in war, but to burst forth in song. 
And as we picture that, we get caught up in the glory and the wonder and the questions. What do angels sound like when they're singing, especially that many? How bright would it really be? But then you zoom out a little bit and you realize where we are. We're in a field outside of Bethlehem. And then you look down and you see who the recipients of this announcement are. And we have to pick our jaws up off the floor because there we see this small little band of shepherds. Shepherds were at the bottom of the social class. They were some of the lowliest people of the day. They lived out for most of their lives in no man's land. They were suspected of being shady characters and thieves who could do what they want when they were away from society. They weren't even allowed to serve as witnesses in a court of law. And those lowly shepherds came to see what the Lord had made known to them by these angels. And they traveled to Bethlehem, And there they found Mary and Joseph and the baby. Picture it in your minds, if you will. There's the true Savior's birthday. Heaven's announcement has gone forth and been received. And now here's the reception. Mary, Joseph, smelly shepherds, maybe some extended family, Maybe a few townsfolk who saw these shepherds running into a house and wondered what was going on, and probably some animals. And they're all gathered around God's promised fulfillment. Here it is, a baby in a feeding trough. You realize it's, it's no accident that God's promised fulfillment arrives in this way, is it? we see that what the Christmas story is doing is it's putting in narrative or in story form what the rest of Scripture tells us, that this is how God's salvation comes to us. All of the counterfeit promises of gaining peace and joy and salvation, do you realize they all have something in common? They all come by people somehow climbing up like Caesar, gaining power, gaining status, doing things that other people or God himself will somehow notice and smile upon. But the Christmas story reminds us that God fulfills his promises by coming down to us. And this isn't even the bottom of how far down God will go in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 In that famous passage, Paul says that the Son of God took the form of a servant and being born into the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. The child who was laid in a manger would be lifted up on a Roman cross to die. That little baby who was wrapped in those swaddling cloths would later have his lifeless body wrapped in linen and laid in a tomb. Why? Well, he came all the way down so that he could deal with the depths of our sin. 
He took on our weakness. He took on our frailty. He lived perfectly as one of us. And he died the death that we deserved to die because of our sin. So that through faith in him, we too could be raised with him in resurrection life. And this is really good news. Because you know what that means? That means that there is no one who is too low for this Savior. There's no social status, no sin that is too low for him to save. Whatever wrongs you have done or are involved in now, whatever good you have failed to do, no matter what you've never had or experienced, no matter how others view you in this life, Jesus is a Savior who has come so far down that he turns none away who come to him. And the beautiful news of this gospel is to put your faith and trust in him as the only one who can bring God's salvation to people like us. And we can know that he will raise us up again with him when he comes. For those of us who are trusting in our Lord Jesus, who know that he came down to us for our sin, are you feeling low today? Tired, weak, burdened, weighed down? I find it fascinating that the author of Hebrews says that part of the reason that Jesus came down was also so that he could know the lowliness of our weakness and he could experience the lowness of life in a fallen world. And he experienced it not to hold it against us somehow, but to help us in our need. Not to condemn us for our lowliness, but instead to provide sympathetic comfort no matter how far down we find ourselves in this life. However low we are today, the Christmas story reminds us that we have a Savior who came down to save us and to one day raise us up. But that picture that we have in our minds of that lowly first Christmas it also reminds us of something else. It reminds us that all who gathered around the Savior that day were lowly, weren't they? Who wasn't there? The rich, the powerful, the ones who didn't believe that they needed a Savior. They weren't there. And it shows us what the rest of the Bible says about how God's salvation is received. It is, for on, it is only for those who are lowly, who come humbly, empty-handed, to receive heaven's gift. You see, what it's telling us is that Caesar's way won't work. You can't come with your hands full of your status and your power and your accomplishments. You can't come seated on or aspiring to the throne of your life. As Jesus will later say so clearly, whoever does not receive the kingdom of heaven like a child shall not enter it. 
Or as Paul says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works of any kind. Why? So that no one may boast. And so the Christmas story reminds us that we come to receive God's salvation when we come to this lowly child with our hands empty like a child to humbly receive the salvation that he gives to us. Will you receive this salvation today? Some of you have been through many church Christmases. You've heard this story many times. You may have been zoned out the whole time, um, but be coming back right now because you hear it's winding to an end. (laughs) And you may have heard it many times, but you've never come and kneeled and worshipped empty-handed at this lowly manger. For others, this may be your first time really hearing this message of God's promise of salvation and how it has come down to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever your situation is today, hear this announcement of truly good news and respond to heaven's invitation. Come, kneel, bow, believe, And the beauty is you receive God's gift of salvation this way. Brothers and sisters who are already trusting in Christ have received the beauty and the wonder of this salvation. The Christmas story asks us, have we lost sight of the story? Have we forgotten how God's salvation comes to us? Just as our hearts so quickly look to and are tempted by all these other promise makers around us who are saying they will somehow make things right, so also our hearts quickly default to Caesar's way of climbing up, of somehow getting busy enough and big enough for what? For what? I find this Christmas story comes to me each December and my hands are busy, my feet are moving, my heart is chasing. And what it's really thinking is if I can only have this or that, if I can only do this or that, then what? Then somehow I could receive blessing, favor, goodwill from God. Then somehow... I could work to receive what is all of grace. Do you see how we lose that story? But instead, God's word comes to us and says, Believer, come, bow, believe. God's grace has come down to you in the first coming and will continue to come down to you each and every day until our Savior comes again and we are raised up to receive all that has been promised for us. He doesn't expect you to now somehow come up to him. You can't do it. So stop all your striving and instead receive afresh the grace of God that comes to us through this child who was born, who lived, who died, and was raised for us. And what do we do 
while we wait for him to, re- to return, while our lives look a lot like the faithful who are waiting for his first coming, don't they? They're often pretty plain and ordinary, faithful, patient trust in God to one day bring all of his promises to pass. But do you realize our situation, though, is even better because Jesus has already come and he ascended. And when he ascended, God came down again. And the Holy Spirit has been sent into our hearts, the same spirit who empowered Jesus in his life and ministry, the same spirit who gave Jesus the ability to die and secure our redemption is now the spirit who dwells within us and is empowering us to live out that salvation until glorification comes. And while we're waiting, the Holy Spirit does this amazing thing. He empowers us to also bear witness to this child until he appears again. Just like those lowly shepherds who were proclaiming what had been told them concerning this child, the Spirit helps us through our words and through our actions to share that news that God's salvation has come down to be freely received by those who trust in his Son and in the one who will come again to bring the fullness of all that God has promised us. All things made right as we one day dwell with our triune God forever. May he give us that strength until he returns. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for how it comes to us in so many forms in letters, and poems, and stories. But it all speaks of the beauty of your gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you fill us with joy and faith afresh in the wonder of all that you have promised and how you bring it to us by grace and that we would continue in that grace until our Lord Jesus comes again. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.